Whenever you make a brocha over a mitzvah, you're supposed to then do the mitzvah as soon as possible without interruption. Every single morning, we make brochas over the mitzvah of studying Torah. Now, we might study plenty Torah during the course of the day, but we don't want to have an interruption between the brocha and studying the Torah. So straight away, as part of the early segments of our davening, we learn sections of the Torah. We read a section directly from the Torah itself, as well as a Mishnah from the oral tradition. The Mishnah is sourced from the tractate Peah that talks about agricultural obligations. And this particular Mishnah says, Elu Devarim, the following things have no measurement. In other words, there are certain mitzvahs that can be very clearly defined. When you do these steps, you have completed the mitzvah. But these are mitzvahs that have no limit. You can keep doing it and doing it, and you still would not have reached the parameters of the mitzvah. For example, Gemilus Chasodim, being good to other people, showing kindness. This is not just giving financial assistance, tzedakah, but it's all kindness that a person can share with somebody else. There's no limit to how much you could do. And then it says, and the following things are mitzvahs for which a person enjoys benefit in this world. In other words, there's some kind of reward <clears throat> that the person has in this world. But the real experience of what Hashem intends to give us for these mitzvahs will only be revealed in the next world. This is quite insightful because it tells us a lot about how the situation, how the, the story of mitzvahs works. If you read in certain sources, for example, in the Torah itself, it says that if you follow my statutes, I will give you what appears to be proper, ordinary, physical blessings. Rain in the right times, protection, the things that you need for yourself. When you look in the Talmud, there are many statements in the Talmud that indicate that schar mitzvahs Baha'i al-Maleka, that there is no reward for mitzvahs in this world. The reward for mitzvahs are reserved for the next world. They're a spiritual experience that a soul has after it enters Gan Eden. And this Mishnah seems to say, well, it's a little bit of both. You get some of the reward in this world and some of the reward in the, only in the world to come. So what does it mean? We have a principle which applies in life, but in this case we apply it to how Hashem in, interacts with His world, that sometimes in life there's what you really want and then what people see that you want. Let's say for argument's sake a person runs a business. What you really want is you want to, be, to make money. <laughs> you want to do well. You want to be wealthy. What do people see? They see that you want to build your brand. You want to build your business. So obviously there are many situations where what a person can tell is only the outside, the external part of the story, and people don't necessarily know what you feel on the inside. Likewise with Hashem. What did Hashem want? To create that's what we observe. He created an entire universe, physical universe. And then beyond that, a whole series of spiritual universes. That's what he wanted, right? Well, that's at least what we see. But what does he really want? What was the real motivation behind that creation? He really wanted to get to this physical world where there would be people who he would give free choice, who would then choose to do his mitzvahs. That's what he really wants. So in this world, you could get... Because of what you've done, you could get some kind of a reward that would belong to the context of this world, the created reality. More money, health, security, nachas. Those are rewards, but they're not the real reward because they don't relate to what Hashem really wanted. At some future point, firstly for a soul when it enters Gan Eden, and primarily in the time of Moshiach, 
we will get to enjoy and benefit the real investment that Hashem made in this world. The fact that He sees value in us for the mitzvahs that we have done. Not that the mitzvahs are a means to an end, more money in my bank account or nachas from my children, but then we'll get to appreciate that the real greatness of the mitzvah was the mitzvah itself. At this time of the year, the three weeks as we call them, the Bain HaMetzorim, we commemorate a whole lot of terrible things that happen in Jewish history. That's why these three weeks are a time of mourning. They start with the fast of the 17th of Tammuz. It ends with the fast of Tisha B'Av. And generally speaking, it's a difficult time of the year. So what should we do at this time of the year? Because as Jewish people, we always look to find an opportunity to reduce the tension, to mitigate the negativity. So what can we do at this time of the year in order to reduce that tension? There are various suggestions that are given. We give extra tzedakah. We're supposed to engage in Avas Yisrael, a greater investment in care for the next person. One of the things that we're supposed to do at this time of the year is to study what is called Hilchois Beis HaBechira, to study the details of the structure and of the service that would happen in the Beis HaMikdash in the Temple. And the reason we do this is for two reasons. The first reason is because we're taught that anytime that there's a mitzvah to do that you personally are unable to do. And by the way, the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, says that a person's soul will keep returning to this world until such time as we fulfilled all of the mitzvahs. So how does that work? Because certain mitzvahs are only for men and certain are only for women. Certain mitzvahs can only be done in Israel. Certain mitzvahs rely on certain circumstances that are beyond your control. And certain mitzvahs could only be done at earlier periods of Jewish history. So what do you do in order to fulfill the mitzvah? We're taught that if there's a mitzvah you are unable to fulfill, if you study in depth about that particular mitzvah, then it is considered as if you had fulfilled the mitzvah. So for example, the Talmud tells us that kol that any person who learns the details of a particular offering that was brought in the Beis HaMikdash in the temple, it is considered as if you personally had brought that offering. So the first reason at this time of the year to study about the Beis HaMikdash is because this is the period in history when historically the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, which means that a whole major component of Jewish life ceased for a lengthy period of time. And when we look forward to the coming of Mashiach and the restoration of that part of Judaism, but currently it's been suspended. So by learning about the Beis HaMikdash, learning about its design, learning about the service that used to happen there, it is actually considered as though we had built the Beis HaMikdash and as though we had engaged in the service. So that's an appropriate thing to do at this time of the year, almost to fill the gap of what was taken away from us. There's a second reason which maybe is even a more compelling reason. And that is that as Jewish people, consistently, multiple times a day, we pray to Hashem to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. Not because we want to have a big fancy building in our capital city in Jerusalem and that the whole world should marvel over its magnificence. The reason we want to have the Beis HaMikdash is because that becomes a tuning fork. That becomes a place on earth where Hashem is more revealed. Much like if you went to the embassy of any country inside the embassy, the rules follow the host country. Inside the Beis HaMikdash, the rules follow the host. In other words, it's a place of divine revelation. It's a, pra- a place of open miracles. And it creates a sense of connection and awareness, not only for us, but in fact for the whole world, to live 
a higher life, a more moral life, a more spiritual life. So we constantly pray to Hashem, please, please speedily restore the Beis Amikdash, the temple to us. When you learn about it, when you get into the details and you do the research, then it's what you call putting your money where your mouth is. In other words, you show Hashem, we're actually enthusiastic about this. We actually care about it. Look, we're learning all of the details. At this time of the year, when we're acutely aware of what we lost with the destruction of the Beis Amikdash, it's quite an appropriate time for us to spend some time showing that we're interested in knowing about it because we're enthusiastic for its restoration, which hopefully will be the catalyst to get Hashem to restore the Beis Amikdash for us. And together with that, all of the great blessings and revelation that go with it. It's really interesting that in our morning prayers, we also learn Torah. Because most people expect that prayer is one kind of interaction with Hashem. And study is a different interaction. In fact, spiritually, the goal of prayer is I stand here on earth and I try reach up in order to connect to Hashem on high. Torah is Hashem on high reaching down and offering me an opportunity to read up and understand some of what he thinks or what he would like us to think. So usually there are two different angles and you don't expect the two to go hand in hand. But in our morning prayers, we start with a few paragraphs of learning. One of those paragraphs speaks about the different kinds of mitzvahs and what happens when you do them. So there's one class of mitzvah that we're told that has absolutely no limit to how often or how much of it you could do. And the second class of mitzvah that we learn about in our morning prayers is the mitzvahs for which we get reward both in this world and in the world to come. And it gives us a list. And the last one on the list is Torah learning itself. And the expression that's used over there is the Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam. The study of Torah equates or it implies almost is as valuable as all of the other mitzvahs. Now, we do know that Torah study is a very big part of being Jewish, and it's a great virtue. But it's strange to suggest that one aspect of Judaism should equate to all of the others. So what do we mean when we say that the study of Torah equates to all of them? It surely does not mean that if you study Torah, you are exempt from other mitzvahs. It definitely is not an excuse for somebody who studies Torah to behave badly in the way that they treat other people and say, well, Torah study equates to all of them. In fact, on the contrary, if you have a look, so we're told that the Torah does certain key things for us in terms of our spiritual development. Number one, the Torah has two major streams. The one stream of Torah is called scriptural Torah, the Torah Shebech Sav, the 24 books of the Tanakh. And when you study the books of the Tanakh, Regardless of whether you understand what you're studying or not, this is the divine word, verbatim. So there's holiness in every word. That's one stream and one approach. The acceptance of Hashem's absolute authority and wisdom. The second stream is what is called Torah Shabbat, the oral law. The oral law challenges us to think, to question, to research, to debate, and to try and derive conclusions from modern scenarios based on ancient teachings. That's the part of Torah that calls for us to participate. So the balance between the two is in fact Keneged Kulam. That represents the whole of Judaism. Judaism is this give and take between accepting what Hashem's authority says and investing the talents that He has given us to try and understand and appreciate that to the best of our abilities. 
Also, we're told that the purpose that Hashem gave us the Torah for was to bring peace to the world. And that's why anybody who suggests that they can just disappear into a quiet space and study Torah and thereby be exempt from dealing with other people is completely off the mark. Because the whole purpose of Torah is to bring us to a point where we bring peace to our environment, where we connect to other people, where we bring a sense of harmony to the world that we live in. Torah gives us a responsibility to change the world and to make it a better place. That's also why it is called Torah's Chesed, a Torah of kindness. And that's a good barometer to know if you're studying Torah properly. Does it make you kinder? Does it influence you to inject kindness into the world in which you live? That's why we say Torah study corresponds to the whole of Judaism. And that's why we plug Torah into our prayer experience. Because Torah is a reminder that there's always this balance a Jewish person has to achieve between what Hashem says and my own appreciation that I understand it in my own mind. Torah reminds us that the purpose of the whole of Judaism, including the prayers that I'm about to say, is to bring peace into the environment in which I live and to bring greater kindness into our world. Good morning. We're about to go into Shabbos. It's Shabbos Mevorch in the Shabbos that blesses the upcoming month of Menachemov. It is also Shabbos Chazak, where we celebrate the conclusion of the fourth book of the Torah, the book of Bamidbar. And to do that, we read a double Torah portion, Matois and Masei. Matois starts off with an address to the Matoi, Roshei HaMatois, the heads of the tribes. And Masei starts off by telling us the journeys. Masei, Eile Masei B'nei Yisrael. These are the journeys of the Jewish people, Asher Yatsumi Eretz Mitzrayim, that they took to leave the land of Egypt. And the Torah goes on to list 42 journeys, which in itself is interesting because many of those places were not journeys per se. They were overnight stops. Nevertheless, the Torah calls them journeys. And what's intriguing about it is it says these are the journeys in the plural that the Jewish people took to leave Egypt. Now, to leave Egypt is a single journey. There's a border. You cross the border. On the one side of the border, you're in Egypt. On the other side of the border, you're out of Egypt. So that's it. Surely it's one journey to leave Egypt. Why does the Torah say these are the journeys over a period of 40 years, 42 different journeys in order to leave Egypt? And then, of course, eventually at the end of it, they land up at what is called Al Yardain Yerechoi, which means that they get to the border of Israel, they get to the promised land, which represents this incredible spiritual achievement, not only a physical destination. So what's the Torah telling us? We know that in Hebrew words are very carefully chosen. The word Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew for Egypt, comes from the word Meitzar. Meitzar means a very narrow, constricting, claustrophobic experience. So to have been in Egypt as slaves, you can imagine, was a very limiting experience. Here was a people with tremendous potential who were schlepping bricks and building cities that were going nowhere. So you can imagine just how limiting that was for them. Now, spiritually, each of us lands up in that kind of an experience, and possibly even physically as well. Right now, we're in a sort of a Mitzrayim restricted movement. We can't interact socially in the normal way. So it's kind of a Mitzrayim. And likewise, spiritually, a person could be in a spiritual Mitzrayim, which means that I'm very limited in my understanding, very limited in the things that I do. I feel kind of restrained and restricted either because of external circumstances or because of my own issues and weaknesses. So when that happens, whatever the situation might be, it could be a physical experience that we're going through where we feel that the world is closing in on us, 
or it could be a spiritual experience where we feel that we, we just don't know how we're supposed to get moving. How do I inspire myself? How do I grow? So whenever that happens, the Torah comes to tell us, look, life is a series of journeys. And every single person will go through a series of journeys. In fact, the Baal Shem Tov taught that all of us will go through 42 different journeys in our own lives. Some of them will be dramatic and prolonged journeys, and some will be overnight stops. Some issues we'll tackle for our whole lives, and other issues will resolve in a relatively short period of time. But in each case, here are the two important things to remember. The first is that to leave Mitzrayim, and Mitzrayim is not a location, it's a state of mind, it's an experience that I'm going through, to break out of whatever it is that seems to shackle me, takes one step. Just one step. Often we think, I have to have this whole five-year plan and a proper strategy. One step in the right direction already makes a revolutionary difference to my experience. Number two, though, the flip side of it is, when you've made that step, don't pat yourself on the back and say, wow, look at me, look how well I've gone. Look how much I've done. It's journeys. There's a constant movement out of Egypt. Wherever we progress to, that becomes the new Egypt, meaning to say that this becomes the new set of limitations that I have compared to the potential of what I could still achieve. And so the Torah is teaching us that a person at all times should constantly strive to always improve, and not just to improve, but to improve in such significant fashion that you look back and say, wow, I cannot believe that just a short while ago I lived in such a confined space. May Hashem bless us to successfully go through those journeys and leave behind both the physical, the mental, and the spiritual Egypt Mitzrayim experiences that might plague us at this time. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We're blessing the new month. May it be a good month. Good Chodesh. Today is Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of a new month, which is always a time of promise and brocha, except that this particular month is a month that usually fills people with a sense of dread and concern. We now start the month called Menachem Av. This is a month that, if you go back throughout our history, is always associated with national Jewish tragedy. It's for that reason that people feel there's a negative energy at this time of the year. In fact, we're told that this is not a time to start a new endeavor, and it is a time to avoid being in court, because our muzzle as a Jewish people is not as its strongest, at its strongest. The Talmud says, When this month enters, you're supposed to diminish the joy that you have. doesn't say don't be joyous, but diminish the joy. And for that reason, we have certain restrictive behaviors at this time. We don't eat meat or drink wine for the first nine days of the month other than on Shabbos, and there are various other restrictions that are associated with mourning as well. On the other hand, what is interesting, while the first nine days of the month are very focused on the negative parts of our history and a sense of mourning, we're also told that the 15th, the middle of the month, is one of the greatest joyous days on the Jewish calendar. So it's a month of paradox. People tend to focus only on the negative, and it's important for us to recognize also the potential positive that this month carries. The day that shapes the nature of this month has got to be Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, the day of national mourning for all of those tragedies that happened throughout history. And with regards to Tisha B'Av, the Midrash says something very interesting. The zodiac sign associated with the month of Av is Leo, the lion. And of course you would assume that a lion has quite a positive connotation. It's a symbol of royalty, it's a symbol of strength. Ironically, in the month of Av, sometimes it represents our strength as a Jewish people, and yet, our history also shows that it represents the strength of our enemies, their ability to be able to 
destroy things that are incredibly important to us. So the Midrash makes this observation. The structure of the Beis HaMikdash, the temple, which was destroyed on the 9th of Av, both, both the first time around by the Babylonians and the second time around by the Romans, was actually called Ariel, the Lion of God. And the structure of the building was designed to represent a crouching lion. So the Midrash says, The great powerful lion, referring to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who incidentally they say used to ride around on a pet lion. So the great lion rose up during the month that is associated and represented by a lion and destroyed Ariel, God's lion. Which of course makes sense, that's what happens historically, but the Midrash continues. In order that, now this is interesting, in order that, why did it happen? Why did this Nebuchadnezzar destroy the temple? In order that the lion, in this case referring to God, as the verse says, if a lion shall roar, who shall not be afraid? And that's supposed to be metaphoric of God. In order that the lion, God, will rise up in the month of the lion, the month of Av, and will rebuild Ariel, the lion of God. In other words, our perception is that these tragic events of our history, particularly the destruction of the temple, are not full stops. They're not the end of a process on the contrary. They are the catalysts for positive processes that would still come in the future and specifically in the month of Av. As we enter this month, on the one hand, we're cognizant of everything that went wrong in our history during this period. Equally, we are confident that this is a month that Hashem can, in the words of Maimonides, turn around from days of mourning and sadness into days of celebration and the greatest festivals. Please God, that should be our experience this, this year's Av. Yesterday Rosh Chodesh Av was the Yorzeit of Aaron HaKohen, Aaron the High Priest, the older brother of Moshe. And one of the things that made Aaron so famous is that he was a person who somehow always managed to bring people who were in conflict back together to reconcile and to recreate peace between them. It's for that reason that the famous sage Hillel says we should study the behavior of Aaron and be like him. People who love peace and pursue peace. So what exactly did Aaron do when there was a conflict? Whether it was a conflict between two friends who had had a fallout or a conflict between husband and wife, what he would do is he would go to the one party Let's say it was a couple. He'd go to the wife and say, your husband really would like to reconcile. He feels terrible about what's happened and he'd like to apologize. He's just a little embarrassed to do so. So he asked me to approach you on his behalf. And she would then say, wow, that's amazing. I'm so pleased to hear that. The truth is that I'd also like to put this issue behind us and I'd be happy to apologize to him. Armed with that information, Aaron would then run back to the husband and say, you can't believe it, I've just had a conversation with your wife and she really wants to reconcile and she'd like to make up and she's happy to apologize. And essentially he'd work between the two of them to bring them to a point where they could reconcile. And it sounds really beautiful and that's of course something that we would want to achieve is to be able to bring people back together when there is some kind of chasm between them. Only raises one question, at what cost? In other words, Judaism definitely holds integrity and honesty in very high regard. And we hold peace in very high regard. The question is, are you allowed to sacrifice integrity for the sake of peace? I mean, you can understand that sometimes it's appropriate to tell a kind of white lie in order to preserve 
shalom, peace between people, certainly between a couple. But there's a big difference between a white lie or just overlooking certain details that might be uh, controversial and saying something that's outright not true. It would seem that Aaron said something that was outright not true. He had never spoken to the husband by the time he proposed to the wife that her spouse wanted to apologize. Or if it was two friends and he told the one, the other guy really would like to make up with you, even though you hadn't spoken to the other guy. So on what basis was Aaron allowed to, and in fact it's now considered something we should emulate, to make up a story about somebody, fabricate a lie in order to bring peace? The truth of the matter is what Aaron teaches us is incredibly important, not only in our understanding of people, but more importantly, in our understanding of the perspective that Judaism has of people. Things happen. We get into scraps with other people. We, we get caught up in a situation. And anybody who's observed up close when there is a conflict and then dealt with the mediation of that conflict, you'll see how it's incredible the way in which people can get totally caught up in the moment and forget about the relationship. What Aaron knew was that every person on the inside is good. And every person at their core wants peace and wants what is right. If people are fighting, it's only because they're not touching who they are at their deeper level. They're just expressing who they are at their most superficial level. And so when he went to either party and said the other one wants to make up, he knew that that was absolutely true at the core of their being. And his job was to bring them to a realization of who they really are and how they really think. And so he wasn't lying at all. On the contrary, Aaron was teaching us that we only perpetuate conflict when we insist that people are their superficial selves and we're able to reduce and reconcile, reduce conflict and reconcile people when we remind ourselves and by extension remind them of who they really are, good at their core. This is the month of Av, a time when we're supposed to concentrate on bringing people together and seeing the good in others and increasing in love for the next person. So Aaron is the first person we meet in the month of Av because he teaches us that it's not a game and it's not about saying something that's not exactly true because it's that, that important to bring people together. It's about recognizing that every person on the inside is pure and good. This Shabbos we're going to read the parasha of Devorim, which is the first parasha of the fifth book of the Torah. The fifth book of the Torah is completely distinct to the four preceding books, because the four preceding books are told in live, real time, and it's Hashem speaking, whereas the fifth book of the Torah is as a review, and it's Moshe speaking. And a lot of what it does is, besides telling the Jewish people what had happened to them during the 40 years in the desert, he points out certain things that they had done inappropriately and learns lessons for the new generation that was going to go into Israel that they should then apply in their lives going forward. One of the very intriguing things that Moshe says in this week's parasha is he refers back to when they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And of course, that was a pivotal moment in the Jewish history. That was the time when we received the Torah and became this unique nation, as Hashem calls us, Am Sugula, a unique or treasured nation amongst nations. And in this week's Torah portion, when he reviews it, Moshe says, Rav lochem soy which basically means you, you stayed a little bit too long at Mount Sinai, which is a fascinating thought because Mount Sinai was this place of incredible upliftment, incredible connection. 
How could they possibly stay there for too long? That would be the equivalent of telling somebody that you're having a deep and meaningful experience, but it's taking too long to experience that deep and meaningful experience. So what was Moshe trying to tell them? Now, if you put it into context, at that point in time, this was before the story of the spies, essentially the next step after receiving the Torah was to get to the border of Israel and to enter the Promised Land without any further delay. Of course, circumstances did not work out that way because of the story of the spies and the Jews losing faith, and therefore they were destined to go around in circles in the desert for 40 years and only the next generation would enter. But at this particular point in time, when they were at Mount Sinai, their objective was to get to the Promised Land, to the land of Israel. And so effectively what Moshe was telling them is that as great and beautiful as the experience of receiving the Torah may have been, in fact, not only was it receiving the Torah, but it was this intimate connection between them and Hashem, that would pale in comparison to what they still needed to achieve, which was to enter the land of Israel, which would give them an opportunity to apply what the Torah is all about. Many of the laws that were given um, at Sinai could only be applied once they were working and living and farming in the land of Israel. And there's an incredible lesson in this for us, because what happens with us is very often we create a goal for ourselves, a spiritual goal, a personal growth goal, and we work towards that goal. And when we reach it, it's very exciting and it's uplifting and it's exhilarating and you feel connected and you feel inspired, very much as the Jews did at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the temptation at that point is to sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, well, that was wonderful. Look how well I've done. Look how much I've grown. And why should I have to push myself to go any further? Here we see that Moshe not only tells them that there was another objective to achieve. Okay, so you got to Sinai, that's great. Now there's another objective to receive, sorry, to go into the Promised Land. But he actually says, Rav Lochem, the fact that you were in this great spiritual place and you were being productive and you were growing, but, the, but you still had another goal that lay beyond that, means Rav Lochem, you, it's too much. It's too much investment in the here and now. Keep going, keep moving, keep growing. And this is a hallmark of Judaism, that it doesn't matter how well we have done, it doesn't matter how much we have achieved, it doesn't matter how much we have learned, there's always the opportunity and there's a certain urgency in that opportunity to say, well, there's still opportunity for much more. There's still the time and the challenge of further growth. I should never pause and say, I've done so well. I should always say, and now that indicates that I could do even better. Have a wonderful Shabbos. In our morning prayers, we invoke the words of Bilam, the wicked prophet who wanted to curse the Jewish people and instead not only landed up blessing us, but gave us some of the most powerful words of our prayers. So we say, Ma toivu oi Yaakov. How good are your tents, Yaakov, Mishkanoisecha Yisrael, your dwelling places, Israel. Both Yaakov and Yisrael are collective nouns to represent the Jewish people. The Jewish nation is referred to as Yaakov, and we are referred to as Israel. The difference between the two is Yaakov re refers to the Jewish people at one stage of spiritual development, while Yisrael refers to a more advanced stage of spiritual development. Effectively, you could take the whole Jewish community and split us into two major groups. The larger group, those are people who engage with the world, people who are in the business environment, people who hold down jobs, and also attend shiurim and go to shul. The smaller group are the people who are mostly dedicated to study and to davening, 
and are supported very often by the community. And both of these are essential components to what it is to be a Jewish community. This particular prayer looks at the difference in how each of these two groups will experience spirituality and holiness and connection to Hashem. The group called Yaakov is associated with a tent. A tent is a temporary dwelling. It's not somewhere where you intend to be for the long term. Whereas the group called Yisrael are associated with a Mishkan, which is a permanent structure of holiness. And that tells us right there that there are two different ways in which we relate to Hashem. Each one is valid. Each one plays a vital role in the Jewish community. Those who are like Yaakov, well, Yaakov is a composite of two factors. The one is the word Akev, which means a heel, indicating the involvement in the very mundane and lowly elements of life. But it has a second component, the letter Yud, which is the letter representing Hashem's name. Those who are engaged in the business environment, their primary job and responsibility is to bring Yud, godliness, holiness, into Akev, the lowliness and mundane activities of this world. Those are the people, and we can all relate to them because it's probably most of us, who have spiritual ups and downs. Sometimes we feel inspired, sometimes we feel completely adrift. And that's why that group is associated with an ohel, with a tent, because our experience of godliness tends to be temporary. It's a tent for Hashem, which at times is dismantled. The other group, which is called Yisrael, Yisrael has the letters that make up the two words, Li, Roish. I have the head, meaning to say that I have a deep, meaningful, advanced connection to Hashem. And it's mine. I own it because I've worked at it. These are people who spend a tremendous amount of time studying. These are people who, when they daven, don't just go through the words, but they immerse themselves in the spiritual experience of connection to Hashem. These are the individuals who their godliness is Mishkanoisecho. They don't have the same kinds of lows that we have. And the highs that they experience are beyond the highs that we experience. So their interaction with Hashem is more permanent and more lasting. And what our prayer says right at the beginning of the day is that both components are just as valuable when it comes to establishing a Jewish community. There is importance to those who sit and study all day and are totally immersed in the spirituality because they create a sense of permanence to Judaism. And there is a tremendous value for those of us who experience Judaism and then step out into the world and bring that holiness and meaning into the world out there, which ultimately is the purpose for which Hashem created it. Good morning. Today is the 20th of Menachemov. It is the yurtzad of our Rebbe's father, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, who was simply known as Reb Levik, in spite of being a tremendous scholar and Kabbalist and the chief rabbi of the Russian city of Yekaterinoslav. Towards the end of his life, the Russian authorities exiled him to Kazakhstan because of his efforts to preserve Judaism behind the Iron Curtain. In the town of Almaty, where he was exiled, they had incredibly oppressive conditions, could barely put food on the table, and yet through Herculean efforts, his wife, the Rebbe Tzanchana, managed to procure ink so that he could write his Kabbalistic insights on Torah, which he did in the margins of books that he had in his possession. It resonates very much with the words of the previous Rebbe, who in fact was his Mechutan. The previous Rebbe said, they can put our bodies into exile, they can never exile our souls. 
And this is something important for us to think about because the entire process of what we call Golos, the exile of the Jewish people following the destruction of the temple, only affected us physically. We were physically displaced from Israel, physically oppressed, but the spirit of the Jewish people not only survived, but has thrived, and the Jewish soul is alive and well 2,000 years later. It's aligned with an expression that's used in the Torah. The Torah tells us that if a person is at any point sold into slavery, for whatever reason, there comes a point where the master has an obligation to release that person into freedom. And the Torah says, When that time comes, not only is he released, but any children that were born during the duration of that slavery period are released as well. And so the Talmud asks the question, why would you even have to tell me that? The father was the one who, for one reason or another, had become a slave. The children were never slaves in the first, part, in the first place. So why tell us that the, sla- the children have to be released? And the Talmud says in the name of Rabbi Shimon that this teaches us, not only does the master have to release the slave, but he becomes responsible for their well-being, the financial stability of his children as well. And there's a mystical teaching on exactly that point. The father in the story is Hashem. The children are us. And that mystical teaching is Hashem is all able, all capable. He can do anything. He can even do the impossible. He can put himself into a state of so-called exile. It's what we call Shinto Begolusa, the divine presence is in a state of golus, in a state of exile. Hashem can do that. However, the children, that's us, by virtue of the fact that we have a divine soul, and by virtue of the fact that we do not have the ability to do the impossible, by rights, we should never go into any kind of slavery. Only our bodies, as the previous Rebbe said, can be captured. But our souls can never be captured. And that's what the Torah alludes to, where it says, The master is responsible for the well-being of the children. The master is Hashem himself. Yes, Hashem can choose to self-impose in exile. In other words, he can choose to put himself in a position where he is pretty much invisible. Almost as the expression we saw in Tishabav, where God is, so to speak, in chains, unable, so to speak, to intervene and to stop the destruction of the temple. And yet at the same time, Hashem ensures that we are cared for and that our neshamas will never face or feel the brunt of the experience of the exile and will always carry power and opportunity to rise above and not to be defined by our circumstances. Depending on your custom, you might be used to saying this prayer at the end of the service or perhaps right before the service even starts. It's one of the most famous songs in Jewish liturgy and it's one of Judaism's most powerful prayers, a declaration of our absolute faith in Hashem and His relationship with our world. Adoin Oilam, Master of the World. And there are certain things that we follow through this prayer. One of them is we speak about Hashem as King in the past, present and future. The prayer begins, Adoin Oilam Asher Molach. He was the one who was already a king. The term called Yitzunivra, before anything was created. Then we say that after he had made everything according to his will, Azai Melech, 
then in the present tense he is a king. And then we say, and after everything is over, at the end of time, then yim loich, he will be the king. We echo the same sentiment when we say, v'hu ha he was, v'hu ha'yveh, he is, v'hu yeh, and he will be. Now there's an interesting expression that the Talmud uses, and that is, if a person buys at a certain price and sells at the same price, we would not consider them a businessman. Because obviously the whole purpose is that you make a profit. So if Hashem was king before he created the world, and he is king once there is a world, and he will be king after the creation of the world, you have to ask yourself, so what has changed? Was this just some kind of an experiment for our value and actually has no bearing to Hashem? So the mystics teach us that there are two kinds of king that exist. One is, you know, sometimes society needs a leader. And as the expression goes in the Talmud, where there is no man, seek to be a man. In other words, there's nobody else better suited for the job. So you happen to be somebody who has a certain amount of skills. We as a community are going to say, please be our leader. That's the expression that the sages say, Ein melech beloi am. There is no king without a following. In other words, if people don't buy the leadership of this particular king, then he's no king after all, maybe in his own imagination. So that's a person whose leadership is actually built by the people. Then there's another kind of king, which is what we call Melech Be'etzem, somebody who is intrinsically just head and shoulders above everybody else, as the Tanakh says about King Saul. Somebody who's just in a league of their own. The first time you meet them, you want to connect with them, you want to follow them. They're not just filling a gap in the market. They have this intrinsic value of leadership. And then at the right time, we as a community bring them into a position that we can benefit from their leadership. That's the kind of king Hashem is. Yes, there are certain times where Hashem says, I want you to declare me as king, like on Rosh Hashanah. But Hashem is fundamentally Melech Be'etzem. Hashem is a king not because we declare him to be. He's a king, he's a ruler, he's the source of all power, not because we acknowledge him, but because he is, intrinsically so. That's why we say he was the king even before we arrived on the scene and he will be the king even once we are no longer on the scene to emphasize that Hashem's power and greatness is not contingent on us. And yet in his great kindness, Melech, he is a king in the present tense, meaning Hashem allows us the opportunity to create the platform for him to be a king, for him to show his power to and for us.